You're listening to Irish Radio Canada's Home and Abroad and we're in Kilrush in the Museum of Rural Life and Joe Whelan is here and Joe is the I'll tell you straight off come in the door and what you're dealing with is a man who has passion about what he is doing and involved in and we're going to share him some of that passion Joe thanks a million Thank for let, allowing us to come and be here with you the museum itself when did it when did you get start involved in well, it when did it start uh, I retired from the detective business uh, Roughly 12 years ago, right? And we bought this. Uh, this is the Central Creamery for uh, County Clare. Well, this in Australia would would be the Central one in North Clare. But this was the Central Creamery for West Clare. And all the milk, uh, eggs, chickens, turkeys were all brought in here and processed. Now, if you look up here at this one, okay, and the chickens were sold in the creamery in Australia. Come from here, North Clare Creamery in Australia. This building here produced three million chickens. It was all incubators here along the walls and the building next door and it had nine girls worked here full time, uh, boxing chickens. Wow. They bought four million eggs and they produced three million chickens. So where did the, the million eggs go? All eggs were not productive. Some of them they called juggles and some eggs were broken and the hospital across the way here required the broken eggs. So they weren't going to waste. Right. So uh, the live chickens then would be put on the West Clare Railway. And when I went to school, there'd be boxes of live chicks all over the place. Some would be put on the bus. And the mortality rate on the chicks was about 10%. So the chicks would go, that's a six box of chickens. Yeah. You didn't get any extra. But if you got 12, you got one extra. And you also had 24 boxes, which you'll see upstairs. Right. So you got two. And there's a great story told about a, a very heavy lady that was on the bus one day, if we can say that. And on the way to win us, the chicks came loose in the bus. And she started throwing the chickens around. And they could, found, they could find 12 out of the top 10. So the bus driver said, she had to get off a bit of gas and she went down <laughs> and she said to the bus driver I have to find the other chick listen missus you probably shot at his head <laughs> <laughs> so Joe what you're telling me it sounds like the West Clare Rail where yeah. that was the forerunner of the hen party yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that's the story what you think anyway <laughs> so, <laughs> so you were the his love of history from an early age from school yeah when I didn't leave and I got very very well in history and geography very poorly in maths all the people that I have dealt with since uh, you, you weren't too bad about maths I said yeah I was very good at multiplication addition and subtraction were a little bit irrelevant but multiplication <laughs> <laughs> was important <laughs> but uh, yeah we went 27 miles to school daily and 27 miles home again the reason we were sent in Australia uh, from Kilrush to where we lived was probably three or four miles at the most. But in the same was a total Irish school. Right. And my father and mother were kind of, they were patriotic in their own way. And uh, we would have to uh, be up in the morning to milk the cows. Right. We, we'd have a, a cage for catching salmon in the river. That is, if we take it up, the, the fish would be. We often rent the school with the seats out, cooked, 
for our breakfast we were probably with his family in West Clare right. because we lived totally off the land my mother would have probably 50 geese on the river 40 or 50 chickens and ducks and they often employed a lot of people cutting turf in the family because they'd export turf into Limerick and the West Clare Railway probably up to 50 wagons of turf a year and sometimes there was and they killed two pigs at a time. Oh. Now you mentioned you mentioned you were going up to time and on the, the train that was the West Clare Railway, and that of course is the famous one for are you right there, Michael? Are you right? Yes, the same story, yeah. Yeah. And that when did that stop running? Well, I don't believe in nineteen sixty two and that stopped running in nineteen sixty one. So the last period we had a bus was uh, for them to run. Right. That was supposed to follow the, the railway track as close as possible. <laughs> Unfortunately, some people they had more political shout and we had sidelined us a little bit, so we, we ended up sightseeing to get the bus because the people at Dunbeg got the bus go through Dunbeg, and uh, we would while we would get on the, the train with a bit of a run of two or three minutes, we now had to cycle two miles to, to get to the bus. Right. So that was a bit of a disadvantage in our final year. Right. And particularly in the leaving search here, that's the last thing you need yeah, to Yeah, just a critical time, but yeah. uh, look, it uh, was the times that were in it, and that bus, that train was only late in my experience one morning when going by Renine between Milltown and uh, Le Hinge. Uh, the train couldn't climb the, the, the bit of a hill that was there yeah. or the ambush was there just at the back of the ambush so we would all take now to push the train which we were pulling the train back so we, we weren't pushing it right and another night uh, on the turn journey from the hinge to Milton Malva the fellow by the name of Hennessy fell, fell out the train <laughs> but nothing happened to him <laughs> The train itself was, it was steam engine, was that that's a uh, No, that had switched down easily at that stage, but uh, I, I, I had been on the steam train several times, and in our house we never used a clock, because our farm was, was split in three, we had the river, the railway, and the road, right. so when we were moving cows from one place to another, we were always moving got open and closing gates now we couldn't bring the cows home in the evening until the 10 past 6 train had gone to pass. Right. if we were putting turf out the bog with the tractor we were constantly open and closing gates and watching the, the track right. so when the train was coming you put your ear onto the rail yeah. and you'll hear the train coming out of the big which is roughly two miles up the track yeah. I, remember, I remember that so we, you we, put your ear in the track yeah, we, we, we hear the train coming that, that's that away yeah uh, the other thing about it, the, the two old gentlemen who travelled the track every so often uh, checking the gauge and the, what they had was an old Model T truck right. converted with iron wheels yeah. and my father, they, when they see my father they, they rather stopped because they knew he was a Model T expert right. instead of a chest so uh, we'd be out looking at this funny old car because it disappeared anywhere where we went. Right. right. So you mentioned the Model T, and, and I know you spent your career then involved in mechanics, but you also did a bit of time in aeronautics. Yeah, we we um, 
Ouija idea for uh, not really as young princes because a lot of us uh, uh, we did under a special scheme what was called direct entrance. Right. If you had a bit of a connection inside there already, you'd get you'd get a student in, which happened to us. Now only two or three of us had, had to leave and in the chest. So we don't we were given an exam to do anyway and this Captain Saddle uh, came up to w- w- two of us exam in Irish, twenty in Irish. This Captain Saddle called me in the following day and says Mr. Freeland, he says, uh, you have got 80 or 90 percent in the exam, you basically to put in all the mountains in Ireland, all the rivers, and to more or less a geographically question more than mathematically one that right. will suit me down to the ground. Mm-hmm. So he says, uh, why did you join the Air Corps? Uh, this, this was actually in the Corps at this day because we had to do a few months training, military training in the Corps before we with the Bell Dollar. Right. I said, I want to be a mechanic. He says, listen to me now, young fellow, he says. He says, I can get you into the cadets, he says. All you have to do is tell me if you want to go in. And he says, I worked in uh, I worked in Dublin, he says, under a relation of yours, he says. He was a, a left hand Colonel Wheeler, he says. And I says, I, I says, I know, I said, but he wasn't an immediate relation of mine. <laughs> and I said, I want to be mechanic. Well, he says, you have signed on now here for six years, he says. And remember something, we can send you to university, he says. And if you want to be an aeronautical engineer, he says, we'll cost you that. No, I said to him, I want to be mechanic. Mm-hmm. You'll regret that the longest day in your life, he says. <laughs> But anyway, we went up, uh, uh, up to Beldala and we had a nice time there. We played football and hobbling and I used to buy and sell cars in my spare time. I, I was making a few bob. And uh, eventually, uh, when the Blue Max came, we got work on the Blue Max. And there was a particular incident. Uh, George Pepper, Dustin Andrews and James Mason with the main actors and actresses in it. Basically it was a film about the Red Baron and, and his exploits, who was the famous German airways in the First World War. And um, we were there, there was actually a man killed in the set. A cameraman got killed in the making that film. But uh, I made a few pounds out of it anyway and I decided I was going to buy myself out after four, roughly four and a half years right. and I started to sell the tractors for following there right. and that's probably that's 54 years ago right. so then you, you came back down the country and when you, when you I got into the track I, I came back uh, I was actually I had an old Mercedes car which was a very rare car and I pulled in for petrol into a petrol station on the nearest road to the one by your shares if you maybe remember it yourself, Sandra, just as you as you as we left uh, the dual carriage coming over Dublin, the, the first section of it, right? And uh, the man that came out was talking. Look at my car. Why do you say you were very rare car? I loved old cars. I have a said, How do you sound clear or something? 
I never forget the number of the cat. It's TI9111. I'm going to say one. <laughs> so I says, What you do? I says, I'm a mechanic in Deer I says, I'll just have to uh, resign and buy myself out. Do you know anything about tractors? He says, I do, I said to him. I know a good bit about tractors. Well, Salem was always mechanized. Well, he says, I have a man down there to Lush, he says, and I sold him a new tractor, he says. I said, that's my town, I said. And he said, the tractor stopped and I have no one to send down to him. <laughs> and he says, I'm going home now the weekend, but I, I have to go back up to get all my paperwork and everything stopped out. I'll be back one day or two, he Went home and he ran. And through the sudden I switched to a sergeant and it had broke a little pin, I repaired them and back up, and I came out of there with the Zephyr Tractor Agency. <laughs> Next day I was sent off to Czechoslovakia for the, the tractor factory was 1968 and uh, there was about 10 or 12 of us in a bus other potential dealers around the country were set up to sell these diesel tractors they were made in, in uh, Brano in Czechoslovakia where the wind gun was made mm. and uh, as we uh, travelled around the people in the bus were all in tears when we couldn't figure out what was There was lines of Russian tanks passing us. We were passing back here. They were coming from the, the east and we were going towards the east. Right. We thought it was normal until we came to the airport to come back and the Russians had surrounded the place. And we had to spend a week hanging around trying to get out of there. So it was the greatest fight I ever got. Right. That we were locked up behind there and caught that. Right. With very little knowledge about traditional. Uh, yeah, yeah. The time of Dub Trek, if you remember Dub Trek? Yes, yeah. The, the, the famous Dub Trek. But uh, I, I was in the Czech exactly a different time since. And right. I, I was surprised that the Russians were doing up a lot of the old buildings for tourism and so forth. Right. Had, you know, you'd think they'd be just leave it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were going to churches and they were, they were doing up it. Yeah, that was, that's, uh, we sold that attractors for probably 10 or 12 years. Yeah. We littered this side of the country, bro. Right. At one stage, we were selling 100 new tractors a year. Right. And uh, later on, then we took on the Ford Tractor Agency, and the Ford division went bad and they sold it to Fiat, and then they sold it to New Holland. So we were sidelined in that and then we started basically selling Messi Ferguson right, right now my two sons run the business right so when did you retire from the business then? I retired about 12 years ago when we bought this premises here so this is the retirement project well it, it, it wasn't so funny because we gave 2.3 million for this place when we bought it right and six months later the downturn came and it was worth nothing right, right so you could say that was my pension policy <laughs> down to say but I've yeah. been working on it since and we've been here. Yeah. yeah. And I, I got I took on a couple of young apprentices here and when they're good enough then they get a stone over to the garage. Right. And they improve they, they go on. Right. And then I take on a couple of more fellows and that's how we've got this work done. Okay. We haven't received or looked for any grants from the state or anything else. We're doing it in our own way. Right. So So um we're going to pause for a moment and just share a little piece of music and come back and then hear a bit more about the... Uh, you can hear the gramophone if you want music. <laughs>
Do you want to turn on the gramophone for a second? We might as well turn yeah. on the gramophone for a second because yeah. this is, we're in the Museum of Irish Rural Life and nothing more perfect than a bit of music coming from the gramophone. And this is one of the old wind-up ones. Yeah. Uh, with the, the horn. That's John, John McCormack. That sounded like yeah. John McCormack. Yeah. Yeah, well not, very, not the, quite in the season, but the, yeah, uh, very recognisable. Needles and, and, and stuff are getting uh, difficult to get. I'm sure they are. Although I'm sure you can pick up, well, not lots of, but there's 78 still out there that you yeah, can pick up. There's another item there the same time. You can get the first one wall here. Yeah. And if you have time to sit down there for a few hours, you can put it in there. And the whole, the, from, from, from the, 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 the bomb, in the, in, in, in the harbour, 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 yeah, up to the end of the walls out here. Okay. And it's all very interesting, mm-hmm. but you want two or three hours to sit down. Yeah. Now I see it's, it's uh, written and public, produced by Dick O'Connor. Uh, you don't know if that's a, an Irish O'Connor? Well, well, I suppose they are. The Irish origins, they are indeed. They are indeed. This, this, this wood here is all four thousand years old, Bogdan. Okay, the, yeah. As are these tables here, so and this one here is black bog oak. That's it's beautiful. It was thousands years old. Now, where's the, where's that bog oak coming from? We have a, a, we had a, a good lot of bog oak land at home ourselves, and that came from our own land. Uh, this 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 is carbon uh, yeah it's carbon dated it's uh, over six thousand years old right over here then you have a wall built with turf from the bog all right and if you look close you can see all the the fake and the phenolic and the bog where is all the ingredients the the, the is uh, made up from yeah. No, I know with bog oak, and you, you're saying this wall here, the bog oak, when it's like this, is really, it's uh, very much a hard, it's solid. Oh, yes, I am. Um, yeah. When yeah. you come out of the ground, it's like chili. Yes. And, and then, it, as it seasons. As it seasons, if you cut, go cut them with a the saw or anything, it's just like cut the steel. Right. So, at what stage... Do, when these were being cut, that would have to be done at a certain point. So yeah, that's the, to make what appear like, and the easiest way because we are. It's only we're looking at a wall that is the colour of turf, but the size of red brick. So each one looks like a, a, a red brick, but it's the colour of turf. So they would have had to be cut at a certain stage when the back oak was. Yes. You see, the, the bog <coughs> in our land, you'd have to have twenty what they call slants of turf, the bog would be very deep. Yeah. Generally you'll get the, the, the bog oak at the bottom of the, the, the turf is black. Right. And the brown turf is at the top. Okay. Now, as we all know, oak doesn't grow in bog. No. The oak forests were there before the bog. And a lot of cases you'll find black bog oak in the verge of bog on good ground and half of it will not be fully black. 
which I'll show you. Well, upstairs. So okay. The, 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 when you cut it uh, and it dries out, it's assumed close enough to the colour of, of oak, like this here. Yes, that's the one tree, by the way. This They're all from the one tree. That's black bog oak. Yeah. And this is this is this is oak as well. Right. But if you look at the shape, yeah. Now, <coughs> the moisture content these markings are put in, and these shrink a lot further than these. And look at the progress there in the shrinking. Yeah. So. That's right, and that's over time. That's, that's over yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. So to explain, there's a little strap. You know, that's that's it's a lead marking. A lead that's marker that's yeah. being tacked on to the center yeah. of the various cuttings, and over time, because of shrinkage, you can see where the lead marking kind of buckles. Yeah. Uh, to illustrate the shrink. And um, so, Joe, then back going way back when you're saying this is. Thousands of years old. Yeah, six thousand or something. Do you know? And do, when we go back into r our rural life, way back then, would people have been able to do construction with stuff like this? Or oh, yeah, so in dating factors during the famine period, yeah, a lot of people were uh, thrown out by the landlords of reasonably good ground. They lived freely in the bogs. Right. And. They, they weren't disturbed really. They, they lived in the bogs, and the landlords owned the bogs as well, of course. But while they were there, they were improving the bogs, and, and they lived in old bog houses. I remember uh, a bog house in our in our in our farm, and uh, the men that the men that lived in it uh, actually worked in our house as well. And he, my, uh, my grandmother asked him one day. Uh, it was a stormy night, and there was a, a pond, uh, a lake in the bog as well. And uh, all he'd have in the door was, was bags, jute bags. Mm -hmm. And the wet we got to more efficient the bag was. But right. uh, she said, What was it like back in the bog last night, Paddy? It was so bad, he says, the wild geese. Flew in the door, he said. <laughs> and of course, the geese were attracted to whatever bit of light he'd inside. Right. And it, it wasn't a joke, it was. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, he meant it was a joke, but it, it, it well, wasn't a joke. Now, um, bog houses that you mentioned then, they were constructed of mud mainly. So they wouldn't have survived, a lot of them. Like we see stone houses all over the country. There's a lot of remnants of houses. I mean, most of the fields in Ireland, um, uh, if you look at them, there's a black cotton bush or something growing in the corner, and there's a bit of a few stones from together. People lived in every two or three acres at one stage, and we'd be cutting hair when we were young lads, and we'd, we'd hitting in the stone or something. When the weather got dry, the stone, the the the, the, the land will go down with the stone. Say, mm -hmm. yeah, my father said, mm -hmm. yeah, people lived in that corner one time. Mm. And mm. some of those houses are, are, are still in the bogs. Yeah. And I'll show you inside later. Uh, a lot of the, the over the fireplaces had holes drilled on this roughly the 45 degree angle to the wall, like, like this one here. Yeah. And the reason for it, they put pieces of, of the bog in here. The bog uh, uh, high content in, 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 uh, in oil. And often they steep it in goose grease or duck grease or something. 
and lighted and relighted for a couple of hours. Oh. It's called the Berene. Now, if you look at this book here, a man wrote a book here about ancient Irish trees. And uh, the trees are from four to 7,000 years old. And the book is called The Sacred Trees of County Fair, and that's by Michael Houlihan. Yeah, now look at here. Uh, the three commonest timbers found in the bogs are Scots pine, oak, yew, ranging from four to seven thousand years old. This is made from yew, yeah. That's Scots pine, and that's oak. There are all the things that are in these books are represented here, whether it's the stone and the floors. We put a kind of a package together right. to show all the ingredients mm -hmm. that was in the area to build two buildings and everything else. And when you say that again, because the listener can't see that. We're talking the door into the toilet, so it's in use. Is um, which one is it? That's that's uh, Scott's pan, and the mirror is it's the you. And then there's a beautiful piece here. Is that's yeah. the oak, and all the other all the, all the other timbers in. Yeah, that's really our our, our forests are here. Yeah, and what I do with my grandchildren some Sunday, we take them into the wood, and we take the different leaves of each tree, and we put put it in here over that shell and everything else. And that book is here. When, when kids after school, kids come in here and they want to learn about trees, and I say, right, that's ash or that's oak or that's whatever, you can take out this and you can see the fruit of the tree, yeah, the leaves of the tree, mm -hmm. and you actually say, that's that tree down there. Right, mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. So, so that was talking about the, the trees, the bush. Now I look around here as well, and you have the tables, they say, made from beautiful bago and sugan chairs. Um, and on, on the tables, you have a beautiful collection of literature. And I see newspapers, books, photographs, and a variety of other things. Yeah. Um, where were you able to get your hands on, on some of this stuff? I'll I tell you, when I started selling tractors 53 years ago, I'd visit uh, remote places inside the middle of bogs and mountains and everything else. I met, I met everyone. I remember going to, to Kilbaha one day and I sold a tractor there. And you meant that I sold the tractor was speaking out. I sold him the tractor in Irish for six hundred and eighty pounds. And I was just ready to leave and he said Young fellow he says, Come back here to me, he says. I want to pay you for the tractor. This is way before he got the tractor. He went down under the bed and he came up with six hundred and eighty pounds. And I was leaving then I said to him, there was something out there, I said, would you sell me that? There's an old piece of fishing equipment. No, I said, you can have it. He said, no, I said, I want to give you something. So I gave him 10 shillings for it anyway, and he wouldn't take it. He says, Mr. Whalen, he says, when the new woman moves into this house, he says, she'll throw out all our things. He says, you might as well have it. She has our own grandchildren there now in that photograph. Right. And we made these two hot cats down here, they're down in front of the museum. You'll see them down here. Yeah. So I put all the grandchildren in there for a photograph. And they're, they're all there and down. And here they are sitting by the fire, so we're all down messy faces and cats. Yeah, they're, they're, they're nice. My wife said, that's the photograph that's going to a copper. <laughs> so then you, you obviously, as you were going around to all the farms and various other places, because of your interest in history, were you collecting this stuff yeah, all, and all through I, your career? I became an unregistered collector. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no one knew what I was getting this stuff, but I had sheds full of old stuff. 
Did you know yourself what you were collecting? Oh, I did, yeah. Okay. I, I, I always intended on doing something like this. And we were too busy ever to do it uh, when we were younger. Right. So I finally got to the stage that I had the time and the effort and the energy to do it. I won't say the money because mostly what's here didn't cost us anything only to put it together. But yet it's worth a small fortune. Well, we in, can't in, in, in history it's worth a huge fortune. You, you can't put a value on it. No, you can't. The, the thing about it is nice to be able to come in here and for someone like me that my grandmother was born just at the end of the famine. Yeah. And we got all the stories from her. That we're not reading something out of a computer or a book. We're telling you actual facts. Mm-hmm. Which which uh, spend a couple of hundred years. Now the other thing here is there's an awful lot of stuff we're surrounded by that the modern generation and I'm not even talking about teenagers. I'd be saying people up in their mid twenties and thirties wouldn't have a clue what the actual thing is because I'm overlooking at the item on the floor underneath the gramophone. Oh yeah, and I know what that is, but it says there's an awful lot don't. The I'm sure there's curiosity about a lot of stuff here like that. <coughs> well, th- there is. And th- the funny thing about it, if you look at the wheels in the front of the van, yeah, these are actually uh, wheels of a horse mode that came in from Messy House in Canada in 1850 or 1880. Sorry. And uh, I have the original invoice for that for five pounds. Now, if you look at that wheel, yeah, it's most unusual because. I worked in the aircraft industry, and you can see the propeller of an aeroplane, the clear one. If you look at the dull one, there's the propeller of a boat. My brother used to have ships and boats in the River Shannon, don't I? Right. And the third one, you can see the three Messi Ferguson signs in my cap, if you look sideways at it. So, if you look at the tractor inside here, look at the three signs in my yeah. cap. Yeah. You can see the, 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 the three sections of cheese, more or less. Yeah. On it. So, just three different things in that wheel. So, the wheel is just not put in the Willy Nilly is, is put in for a reason. Right, right. It represents three uh, stages in my life. Right. So the three much on there. Now, I should point out what I did mention, of course, was the butter churn. Oh, the butter churn, yeah. Just because it can happen to the That would be a mid churn butter churn. There are all the ones in the museum which I'll show you. Right. And then the, 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 the later ones in were commercial churns in the creameries. Right. Now, come and be looking behind. I see the old brownie camera. Yeah, my mother brought that from America. And so she came back, you said, 1933, was it? 1933, yeah. So the camera was not that much. It wasn't that... uh, People wouldn't have had them then, uh, that often, because the camera really didn't become, like the phone of today, the camera didn't become common. Common, I'd say, probably the the 70s, and then you had the mobile phones in Latin Hills, but... um, we probably didn't appreciate that, that my mother had, had that camera and all she'd done with it. And we weren't really interested in collecting the old photographs, which is unfortunate at this stage, but, you know, as we get older, we do appreciate black and white photographs. We do, we do. And um, so then as we look along with this wonderful big map, this map here on, on your right, facing you, yeah, uh, is first interesting. Because all the different original families in Ireland are here. Yeah. And no matter what your name is, you can find it here. Now, my name, for example, here is O'Fuelon, which is Phelan. Yeah. Whelan in Canada, Whelan. Yes. Now, a lot of the old people went from Waterford. 
during the famine period. Yeah. A lot of them were fishermen and they, they, they fished in well in, in the port areas you can in the fishing district. Now, the Sealands were, of Wheelands, we were moved in up in, in 1650, Cromwell shifted us over here, we were problematic enough. Uh, the the, the Flavins and, and the wheel and the Feelings are there in that part of the water. And they say that when the Normans came in 1169, that those two families, the Feelings and the Flavins, fought them. They were, probably weren't popular because they didn't conform like everyone else. Right. But we were moved up to Clare. Right. Three families from up here in 1650. Right. And all, all the Feelings from that period would be spread around like everybody else. I, I imagine, and I know I, my name gets spelled incorrectly regularly, but we're probably Comerton. We're, whereas we're Comerton. And we're. And with Comerton, is, is it an Anglo Irish name? Or no, yeah, we don't know. We've, yeah. no, we, we, we're pro, we've no idea. Yeah. No idea. You see, when the names are anglicised, you see, they lost the meaning. Now you get most people in here, they ask them. Well, what's your name in Irish? Yeah. And uh, when you look at the name in Irish, then you can actually go to the, well, it's here, it's here, yeah. the other fest. But it's very interesting. I, I often have people in here, and I wouldn't have a clue that their name is on that map. Yeah. And I'd say, where's your, uh, where's your, uh, or the middle of the next, you, you find the name. Yeah. There. Yeah. Yeah. And like Fox and fest like that. Up around me, yeah, 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 and and uh, yeah, they're all there somewhere, and why we all scattered out. If you look at the football teams, often I'd be watching the matches on a Sunday, and I'd look at the Holland football match, and I study the names before, and that's the kind of message on the table. <laughs> I see most of the names in these courts are still the teams will be 50% Anglo Irish. Yeah, but all on the west coast are generally original Irish names. Right, right. So it's just an interesting subject. That it is indeed. Yeah. So we move around, um, and then I see in the, in the room next door there's tractors. Yeah, and I'll, I'm going to show you something that's very important because this is what they call the berean, and this is the early farm lighting. Oh yes, and when your man wrote this book. He only found that in one place, and that's the Museum of Irish Life to Rush. Just to walk in here one day, and he said, I'm writing a book about uh, sacred trees of Clare. And uh, he spent a good bit of time in here. Very interesting fellow. Basically, he was saying that the sea has come in over all the forests, and he was identifying the parts of County Clare where you can find the bogging sticks in the shore.
tells it that I can do now is very interesting to bricks. Uh, bricks were made in a lot of farms around the famine period. To make bricks, basically, you wanted a, a, a flowing stream. Okay. Continu continuity water. About a, mud, about a foot of mud in the land and to be near bed turf on the top of the bog. And basically, what you've done, you've got wooden boxes. Uh, first of all, you cleared off an area, like stripping the bank of turf. Yeah. Then you've got a couple of young lads to go in, put water in, and puddle it. And then when you've got it liquidized, you've got wooden boxes, square boxes the size of a brick, yeah. filled it up, cleaned it with a piece of timber, and you put four or five or maybe ten thousand of in the field. Yeah. Continues a big job. And then after a week or a fall, they'd ride your turn them over like turf. Yeah. You then built them into what looked like a reed. And you put arches and you put turf underneath and turf overhead. This is brown turf from the top of the bog because black turf will crack the brick. And you lit it and it lit for a week. And you had a wind and right into the stop if the breeze were too powerful to go sideways and you missed the top brick. So you had a windbreaker to stop the, the breeze of, uh, of uh, taking the, the, the heat away. Right. So right. after a week, those bricks turned from yellow to red. And there are some of those bricks that came out of a farm my father bought close to the town in 1956. And there was a brick factory down by the river. And when we'd be saving here, we were getting all these bits and pieces of bricks. And we never knew what they were until there was a recent history subject. And there was a brick factory there in 1845. The, the whole history was here. Yeah, yeah. And I understand the black brick was closer to the heat. Yeah. These, yeah. Are, the, these are the brick of the chimney of that house. Yeah. And uh, they weren't perfect brick. Yeah, they were poor quality brick compared with the bricks they had in England in a manufactured uh, proper brick set up. Right. But they could control the heat with coal. Yeah, yeah. And they, they'd put them in, in ovens and pull them through like a railway carriage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. That's, uh, that's the difference. So we move down into the room here and you have um, a nice, uh, fantastically, I, re I recognise those shoe horse. And this is the shoemaker's shop. Yeah, the cobbler. Now when I was a child I went to school with no shoes. Yeah. No shoes until the first frost, October probably. And then <coughs> you'd go to the shoemaker, then to, you'd have your shoes left to the shoemaker. You'd go to the shoemaker to pick up your shoes. And the shoemaker show would see little Johnny coming. And he'd take out your shoes. He'd be working your shoes, then you say. And he just said, when are the shoes be ready? Ah, oh, shall give me another day and I'll have them ready. But another day never come because, because Mickey came in after. <laughs> and when he saw Mickey coming, he'd have Mickey's shoes. <laughs> and he did the same thing to Mickey. Aye. So it could be months you know, it would start to get really fast and then the, the temples would be going and you'd be said, go up to that shoemaker and get your shoes and tell him if he hasn't been done, you'll take them anywhere. Yeah, yeah. And because he gets no money, he'd, 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 <laughs> he'd take them by the fire and he'd do them for you. Right. So the, the shoemaker, basically, if you lift those, that's what every farmer wore. <laughs> now, <laughs> and you think your shoes are heavy. Yeah. The, the problem with the shoemaker, uh, a farmer to plough an acre of ground yeah. with a horse, ploughed, tilled, sowed, and harrowed, probably done about 27 miles. 
So most farmers would have three or four acres of tillage. The farmers were like lets when I was a child. There was no such thing as a fat person. Mm-hmm. Or like, as I said, during the siege of Delhi, a fat person didn't survive long. <laughs> That's the reason he didn't. He was fully loaded down, he was anchored to the ground. We're looking at hobnail boots with the full um, horseshoe at the heel, and uh, right, probably yeah, yeah, that's yeah. that's weighing, I'd say, close on. Oh, there's two kilos there. That wasn't the weight at all. When he struck the mud in the field, he carried that much more weight yes. because the mud stuck to the the the, 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 the calling ease, We call them the nails in the, in the shoe, and. Uh, he was carrying that much more weight. So all the farmers could eat as much fat meat and bacon, pigs and bacon is what they all ate. We had some, we were lucky, because <laughs> they sent to most of them. And there was tin flats. There was <laughs> no farmer anymore than tin stone. <laughs> now if you look at, at uh, soldiers or armies right at, at the same period, there were very few people they were overfed. Feeding was scarce. And in that case, it rationed. And of course, the, the heavy boots would have been on oh, the, yeah, the soldiers' feet yeah. as well. There's the farmers for making the, the, the shoes, yeah. yeah. And there's the gypsies' stuff for making his pots and pans. Right. On the right yeah. here, then yeah. you have the captains' tools. And now, when you say that, like what we're looking at here is every community had to have a complete set of artisans Correct. and crafts because everything happened within the community. There was no mass production, there was no factories shipping in, you were, there was no Amazon. Right? So, the, the carpenter, the, the blacksmith, the cobbler were all important people in the community. And whatever wealth was generated was kept within the area. Yeah. It wasn't exported for fuel or electricity or anything. W- women's shoes wouldn't be imported from China. <laughs> no. <laughs> we used to say enough about that anyway. But anyway, this saw here is very interesting, number 11. Yeah. Because that's what's called the pit saw. And if, if you go back to the time the, the, the English navies were, were very strong with, with uh, wooden ships, they took all the oak from the Irish forests. We had the best oak in the world to make ships or anything else. And they used what they call the pit saw to plank it all and load it in their ships. So they'd put, there'd be one man here at the bottom yeah. and one at the top. And the reason the saw was now at one end, when they were going crooked, uh, they'd used another end of the saw. When they were going wide straight, they used the wide end of the saw. So all the, all the timber wasn't loaded into a ship loosely around. It was loaded square, so it was cut in planks. Now that was one of the big reasons that they had trouble in America, during the War of Independence in America. Because they said to the Americans, they'd map the trees, you take those to the docks. And we shipped it to England. And timber, the English then they kept their own eleven, their own oak, and they drained us. During the famine period here and afterwards, there was no trees here at all. Right. And the only timber that was available was 20 feet down yeah. of the forest. And I'm going to show you how that timber was sourced. Which is very interesting. That represents a tree here on the ground. All right. Now, if you come down here, I'll show you how that was. To find that tree, 
there was two times in the, in the year you could find that tree right you could find it in winter when you got frost okay take for example that's the surface of the ground and the tree is down here yeah it doesn't freeze over that tree right so if you're looking in our case the, the railway was the highest part of our land and you'd look down the land and you could project you'd get a box of matches and throw from left to right these were all when you got frost so you'd be given a piece of uh, a celery tree and you'd put it down the wheat and the lint and when the spring came you knew where that tree was from the, and you'd know how to take it up to take it up then you had an implement like this some of these would be 20 foot long it's called a bog spear and you could get that distance down you could drive it out you could get the wheat of the tree yeah you could get the lint of the tree yeah and you could get the quality of the tree you'd hit that down you'd twist it around yeah and you'd tuck up a sample of the tree you see the way this is designed yeah you wound it back up and you took up a sample of the tree here yeah mm-hmm. if it was black bog oak it was no good show we had no value on black bog oak when we were young guys but the scotch pine was used to make the scallops for touching the houses these and every house was touched in the 40s and 50s very few stated houses this year not clear now would have from this kind of flags that have some houses would be stated would be stated up there but all this area would be touched uh, houses 90% so when my father was coming to town with his bonnets in his little trailer he'd have what they call a jotted bog dead a two in the back of the trailer yeah and he had the bonnets and the bog dead was as much as the bonnets so to take up this thing in winter time when you identified it yeah and knew the quality of it you'd also know whether it was rotten or not when you took up the sample yeah they had no way lifting it so they dig down the both sides and they get a cross cut which is the smaller one here than underneath the pit stuff yeah and they cut that in three foot lengths roughly yeah and then lift it out and take it to town you didn't get the moisture out of it you didn't let it dry because if it dried out it became like this that's 4,000 years old Scots pine that is as strong as I am and here it's 6,000 years old black bog oak feel the difference in the weight now this one here is unstable the black bog oak is unstable because as it gets the sun it will bend and twist see the the table here is made for me to show you how how it bends and twists but that that was very important now right behind you you just do this that is a very rare vice and in 1907 a, a French ship sank in the Bay of Quilty it was called the Lyon mm-hmm. and that was the vice that was on it and uh, a fellow gave it to me lately and to this museum and what would it have been used for on the ship? Oh, all ships of maintenance ok I know my brother used to have ships one time and uh, the ship would be fully equipped with everything to repair that ship mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. Uh, d- d- uh, without docking it you know not yeah, yeah. The, uh, internal engine mm-hmm. yeah everything else mm-hmm. so that's what that came with sank in 1907 now the the, 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 the trucks and quilty uh, the people of Quilty saved most of the crew, crew they went out in Canoes on a winter's evening they saved most of the crew 
And when they went back to France, they sent donations to build a church to St. Quilty. Yeah. I know that's right, Quilty is twinned uh, with the French. Yeah, that would, would, would that probably would, would cause a theology of that? Yeah. Uh, now, if you look down here, there's, there's a very unusual anvil here. See this? Yeah. That's a common anvil. Yeah. It's probably 140 or 50 years old, but this anvil could be 400 years old. Now, the difference between the two anvils is the one that's older has an indentation in the middle of it, like yeah. a half a half circle, also half, half cylinder. Also tapered. And tapered. And why that was, when the British came here with their big guns, there was no road, after dexels would break. But they'd have, have half cuts, full with maybe six houses, four wheelers, and they'd have stock metal and they have coal and they could make an axle on the side of the road and we reckon we maintain that that's where that animal came from right. because uh, no one seems to know anything about it but it is very ancient looking now if you look here at that print yeah that's a very famous print guess what it is great and green in England where the blacksmith could marry her and if you look at the end the way it is mounted here yeah that's mounted in black bog oak with the right. crack on the side of it. Yeah. That one's the very same. Right. So we reinvented that down there. Right. Now, when we're in the area of the blacksmith, the blacksmith was immortalized by um, Oliver Goldsmith, one of the Australian first three, the real smithy standard. This here is what they call a mobile blacksmith shop. It's still working until 130 years old. See that? Bellows working, yeah. Now, if you had six horses in your farm, the blacksmith would lend you with a, a low back car, carry this, and he'd show you six horses. If you had one horse, you'd put the horse to the blacksmith, or maybe two. Otherwise, it would number the horses, large number of horses, with a mobile blacksmith shop. That's a mobile blacksmith oh. shop. Oh. Yep. That is. Um, Sheep shears still working. Invented by an Irish family by the name of Woolsey. They also made the Woolsey car. They came from Mount Woolsey in Carla. Oh. I remember the Woolsey car. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I actually had one of them. But that's, if you need mm -hmm. a good hit here, you could cut it here. Right. I <laughs> <laughs> Some of these are very rare, and I'm going to tell you a story, just maybe two. Uh, this one here, but we caught fish in the river, we caught them with a cage, as did everyone else along the river. Highly illegal, of course. But <laughs> when you get food for nothing, you take it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But a man that's older than me came in here one day and he says, we used to catch our salmon at all when he caged in the river, he said. We would catch our salmon with a unit like this. And what was made from? It was made from bogdale, hammered out with two stones and the like paper. Okay. Wood is paper, anyway, paper is wood, vice versa. And this, this was full of, of oil, the, the bogdale is full of oil. Uh, and what you do, there's a piece of wood here so that your hand wouldn't get burned. You put paraffin oil in that from the lamp and you walk along the river at night 
maybe two or three feet of water and the salmon will come up to you it's a very inquisitive will come up to the, the light and you have a four pound fork like that one up there and you'll stab the salmon so that's how they cut their fish I, I never had them yeah. I had the people tickling fish and everything else yeah. but I never had of anyone but he drew it out the piece of paper and they made it because if it's lost, it'll be lost forever. No, indeed. No, yeah. there's such a thing exists. Yeah. yeah. The other thing that's there now is interesting is this. This item here. And uh, I remember that that was a pitchfork. Yeah. What? <coughs> Jordan rallies for p- political purposes and everything else. They put turf up in the pitchforks and they put. Paraphernalia yeah. and yeah. and a bit of ashes, and they lit it, and that was their tops going around the town. Yeah, but we had an old fella working in our house, a small little man, and his job was going to the creamery every day. The creamery at that time was about four miles from the house, and in the summer's mornings, he'd often go in over the ditch because he fell asleep with the heat of the tank, and I remember he'd come back. With the tank, the tanks of me spilled in my trousers, fighting him up the road. <laughs> but anyway, he showed us how to do this. If you remember the little heaps of dung that were in the fields years ago, they'd bring out the husk caps of dung, and then maybe inside the field you'd see 20 little pyramids of dung. Yeah. And then they'd spread it in the spring, they call it top dressing, they call it. Okay. So they were dressing the ground with, with, with the dung. But in the winter time, those heaps of dung didn't didn't bother, didn't uh, disintegrate. The heat remains in the dung, and it doesn't freeze. So the birds are going to start plowing all this out, and when it hit the ground, it will be full of worms. So millions and millions of blackbirds and thrushes accumulated in the countryside, and a blackbird. It's as big as a teal duck. You know what a teal duck looks like? Uh-huh. But a blackbird is just as big. So they'd go out under the hedges and they'd hit the blackbirds into the bag and the thrushes. We'd done it once in our house. And what happened then? Uh, we plucked the blackbirds and thrush. We put them into the skillet. We put a nine inch square of bacon, carrots and pasta for the onions into it, and you'd eat your fingers after. We, in our house, we bought nothing. Right. We lived totally and utterly off the land. Tea, sugar, soap, and winter. Our own butter, our own salmon, our own everything.
We're going to leave it there for this week and our conversation with Joe Whelan at the Rural Museum in Kilrush, the Museum of Rural Life. We will continue next week with part two of a fascinating time we spent with Joe. You are listening to Irish Radio Canada Home and Abroad. This episode will be available as a podcast if you head over onto our podcast section or if you download our app in the App Store, whether it be an Apple or an Android, you'll get all the uh, links to our YouTube channel, our Facebook page, our Twitter page, and uh, all the archives going back to 2006. Thank you for taking the time to listen, and I hope you come back and join us again next week here on Irish Radio Canada. This is Austin Cumberton saying goodbye for now.